Amen. Well, it's good to see you today. Thanks, buddy. It's good to be with you. Sure to appreciate your pastor and wife. They are such a wonderful couple and what God is doing here. Isn't it wonderful what God's doing in Church of the Valley? And I'll tell you what, what he's doing here, he's doing at places all over uh, the valley, all over the state of Utah. We have been here for 40 years and we have never seen uh, what is happening now before. We're just so thankful to be able to see it and be a part of it. And, and to bless you guys, man, it's just great to be able to be with you. Now, we are going to be in John chapter 11. I encourage you to turn there. You have been looking through the book of John. And last week, you looked at the, um, the raising from the dead of Lazarus. You know, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what did Lazarus have to look forward to? That's kind of it, isn't it? That's kind of the pinnacle. And he was going to die again. That'd be a drag having to do that twice. But, but man, to be raised from the dead. And it says that the, that the Pharisees tried to kill Lazarus because he was a living example, a living witness of the power of Jesus. But last week you looked at his being raised from the dead and you talked about four things. You talked about the miraculous of it, that God could raise somebody from the dead who'd been dead for four days. You talked about the model of Jesus and his prayer. Thank you that you hear me and uh, showed the disciples how to pray, recognizing that the Father does hear us. So you talked about the message, come out. <laughs> um, he's alive, but he's still wrapped up. And how many of us know there have been times when we've been alive, but it's still wrapped up by nonsense and foolishness. And then you talked about mission, which is when we help each other take off the bindings. You know, it's interesting. The disciples, Jesus said, remove the stone. The disciples are kind of like, you're the son of God. You give it a shot, you know. This won't be any problem for you. Why did Jesus not remove the stone? Why did Jesus tell them to remove the, the wrappings? Because he's giving us something to do in his process. It's kind of like, look, you do what you can do, and I'll do what only I can do. And when Jesus raised him from the dead, nobody can do nobody can give new life to someone except Jesus. But then he looks at us and says, now you walk with each other and help each other be free from all those bindings that have kept them in place for years, right? And that's what we're doing when we're walking together, living in, living in community with each other. Today we're going to be finishing up a section, a, a portion in the ministry of Jesus called the Latter Perean Ministry. It's a time when Toward the end of his ministry, when he ministered mostly on the east side of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea, this is followed by the last week of Jesus' life. Who can tell us how long the last week of Jesus' life lasted? There we go. Isn't it, see? It's just not that complicated, is it? So we're really close to the end of the ministry of Jesus, but the interesting reality is that 31% of the gospel material deals with the last week of Jesus' life. 31%. Because... It's cool, all the miracles that he did, but what did he come for? He didn't come to show off miracles. He came to die for the sins of the whole world. And so the gospel gives the most emphasis and the most material, 31%, to that last week of his life. Now look at what it says there. In John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary. Now, you talked last week, these are the professional mourners. These are the ones who, when Lazarus had died, they came out to make sure that a grand demonstration was presented, was put on for the passing of Lazarus. These are the ones who, in verse 31, who, when the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, and they followed her. These are the ones who are with Mary. They, they're, they're not necessarily friends. They are literally paid professionals at weeping. 
And so they're all standing there at the tomb after Jesus, Jesus has already raised Lazarus from the dead. And now here's the response of some of those who saw what happened. Look there in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. What's the goal of this book? And you've been talking about, what's the goal of this book? John 20, 31. But these things are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John was the last one of the disciples to be alive. Toward the end of his life, there were some heresies going around. One of them was called Arianism. There's you a fancy word. Arianism, and they were teaching that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that he was just another progression, he was another stage in uh, the expression of God, whatever that might have been. That he wasn't God in the flesh, but he was a nice doobie, but he was, certainly wasn't God in the flesh. And so the church leaders came to John and said, look, you're the last one around. Would you write your account of your experience with Jesus? And so John wrote the last of the, of the Gospels, and it's written so completely different from the other three because it's written for a different purpose. The first three are called the synoptics. They have a similar look at the life of Jesus. But John's is so different because his goal is to write so that you can believe. What does it say? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. So this is the reason for his writing. It's to reveal the divinity in human flesh of Jesus Christ. And this was the goal of all of John's writings. Look at what he said in 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I was talking with somebody this past week. It might have been your pastor. I don't remember who it was. Um, well, in the past two weeks, I guess. Who said they heard a sermon that the guy said, if you know that you're a Christian, if you know that you're going to heaven, you can be assured that you're not. Because that would be egotism. Now, what that proves is that there is no limit to how stupid one person can be. Okay? Let's just put it out there. John's entire writing is to let us know, to make sure that we know, so that we can believe. His entire writing is based on that. The words know and believe, he's the one who uses them more than anybody else in the whole Bible. He uses believe half the times that it's used and know more than a third of the times. Because the sole purpose of John's writing, all of his writings, the Gospel of John and the, uh, the epistles, is to make sure that people know who Christ is. They know that they have passed from death to life. So, the purpose of the book is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look back in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they saw the raising of Lazarus. What was the result? What does it say the result was? They believed in him. Done. That's the goal. That's the purpose of it. The purpose of the writing is so that you can believe that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And with this miracle, there were plenty of, him who, of them who said, no, this, this guy is, he is who he says he is. The consequence of the miraculous was that people believe. Now, did they believe in the miraculous? Does the miraculous save? Does the miraculous save? 
Okay, now here's the reality. There is a screen of light right here. So I can't see your heads. Now, I can, I can see his because he's, he's got a good good glow going there. I appreciate that. I can see his head nodding a little bit. I appreciate you doing that, man. Shaving your head for me just this morning. <laughs> That's why I went bald. This was for you this morning. Anyway, so you're going to have to say something, okay? Because I, I've got the I can't see you. Do the, does the miraculous save? No, it does not. What does the miraculous do? Is there a place for the miraculous? The Bible says that when they saw, they believed what? In the miracles? What did they believe in? They believed in Him. Paul and Barnabas over in Acts chapter 13 were about to head out on a missionary journey. The first place they went, they went to the island of Cyprus. Then they preached all the way across the island of Cyprus. And they had met the guy who was kind of the governor. He was the proconsul of Cyprus. is a dude named Sergius Paulus. And he was interested in what Paul and Barnabas had to say, but there's this other guy. It was a, the Bible says he was a, a Jewish false prophet named Elymas. And he was trying to distract and keep, keep Sergius Paulus, his buddies called him Sergi, um, from hearing the gospel, and he kept giving Paul and Barnabas a hard time, and Paul finally got tired of it. And over in Acts chapter 13, verse 10, it says, you son of the devil. I don't know if that's what John Wayne meant in the first true grit, but something like that. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, here's what he said, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, what would that do to your dinner party? How would that impact your dinner party? Would that kind of freak you out? Yeah, only a lot of it right? What was, the, what was the result of it? What was the impact that it had? Look in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Why did he believe? Because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What was it that saved? What was it that led to the salvation of the proconsul? Was it the miracle or was it the teaching of the Lord? What was it that got his attention to listen to the teaching of the Lord? What was it that validated the teaching of the Lord? And friends, when all we want to do is use the miraculous for our own benefit and get rid of my own little attack of hay fever, we're, using, we're looking at this thing for the wrong purpose. The purpose of it was to show the world the validity of the gospel. He was not saved because of the miracle. The miracle is what arrested his attention. And if in the acceptance of the miraculous, the, the proclamation is Jesus is Lord, then the miraculous has met its divine purpose. Its purpose was to arrest the attention to hear the gospel because the gospel is what saves, not the miraculous. We were in India a few weeks ago, India and Sri Lanka. And hardly anybody in India gets saved without experiencing, seeing or experiencing a miracle for themselves. 
So I told that to somebody when I got home, and they said, boy, I bet you didn't see very many salvations, did you? We saw hundreds of salvations. And I told them when I was leaving, any people have so much faith, a gopher could pray for you, and you're going to be healed. Because the purpose of it is not to make me feel better, but it's a tool to show the rest of the world. My wife prayed for some people, some women who had not been able to get pregnant after many years of marriage, and we want to get pregnant. Well, that's a miracle that you're not going to see immediately takes a little bit of time, right? So how are we ever going to know? Two of those women have contacted my wife, and they're now pregnant. One of them was Hindu, thoroughly Hindu, family was Hindu, hadn't missed a church service since. Why? Because the miraculous demonstration of the power of God made them open to hear the gospel. And friends, that is the life-transforming message. It's the gospel. So, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. The professional mourners are following Mary. It says many of the Jews who had come with Mary, some of them believed in him. But, in every crowd, is there anybody in here named Poindexter? Anybody ever had a dog or a friend or anything named Poindexter? Good. There's always those Poindexters in the crowd, Right? They're the ones who you gave the atomic wedgies to in junior high school. They're the ones who, when you said it's five till three, they said it's not five till three. It's four minutes and 30 seconds till three, 29, 28, 27. The ones you just wanted to punch in the mouth, right? There were these poindexters in the crowd who saw the miracle, saw a dead dude get up. They saw a dead man rise from the dead. And they still went to tattle to the teacher. Could you understand those people? I never could understand those people. And if you were one of those people, I'm so thankful that you're here today. You made life more enjoyable, and we really appreciate your influence and impact. They go running off. Here are these people who have to go tell somebody in verse 46, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went and tattled. Because this dude raised somebody from the dead. Isn't it interesting how the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay? Isn't it interesting how some are turned to Jesus by the exact same series of events that causes some to turn away from him? Why does suffering and hardship cause some to trust Jesus more and cause others to turn their back on him? When we make the mistake of thinking that if I accept Jesus, then he's going to save me from all difficulty, we have grossly misunderstood the gospel. The gospel is not to save you from difficulty. The gospel is to get you through difficulty because of who's with you. The ones who get angry at the storm... We're wanting an easier life and free of problems. Why did Job say, listen, he went through everything he went through. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why was he able to say that? And yet his wife, who went through the exact same thing, turned around and said, curse God and die. What, what are you hanging on to this thing for? Now listen, we, if Job's wife gets a bad rap, <clears throat> she lost everything also. I've never lost everything. I don't know what my response would be. And until you have lost everything, you don't know what your response would be. She had lost her kids. She had lost her house. She had lost her fortune. She would lost her lives. They lost everything. 
But why was Job's response? The Lord gave. He's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And her response was, I can't take any more of this. Why was it when Jesus came walking on the water that 11 of the disciples saw that the wind was beating against them and the waves were trying to swamp the boat? And Peter was the one who said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. Tell me to come walking to you on the water. And we give Peter a bad rap too. Do you know how far Peter walked on the water? Farther than all of us in this room combined. He got out of the boat. I don't know that I did. I would have. The other 11 didn't. But why is it that the exact same series of events caused some to worship him and some to deny him? That's a fascinating thing to me. When the 11 were concentrating on the storm, Peter was concentrating on Jesus. And while the Poindexters were concentrating on what did the Pharisees say, the rest were enjoying the fact that there was a dead guy who was alive again. And so they go right into the Pharisees, and look at what it says. So in verse 47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What's driving their thinking here? What emotion is driving their thinking? Fear. Fear of what? Fear of loss. And if they lose it and Jesus gets it, now what are we experiencing? That's called envy, isn't it? That's called jealousy, isn't it? Well, what was the motivating factor behind the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees concerning Jesus? What was their primary motivating factor? The Bible says it was envy. What was the main response of the, the Jewish leadership to the church in the book of Acts? The Bible says it was envy. And, you know, when Pilate, when Pilate's standing there and he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a choice. You can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. I'm going to release one person today. You can have either Barabbas, I'll release him, or Jesus. Which do you want? That's kind of like saying, who would you like to have come over for dinner tonight? You got your Billy Graham or Charles Manson? How many of us are going to say, well, let me pray about that for a minute? I don't need any scarring in my forehead, right? I'm going to go with Billy Graham. Pilate was making it so stark, the comparison, that nobody, nobody in their right thinking would ever choose Barabbas. But when they did, even Pilate, even Pilate, the pagan Roman leader, even he knew, Matthew 27, that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And in Thessalonica, when the folks were coming to Jesus after the preaching of Paul in Acts 17, it says the Jews were jealous. They were more concerned about losing their position, their power, their finances, their, their importance, whatever it was. They were more concerned about losing what they had than seeing the coming in of the kingdom of God. Tragic. And they even acknowledged. Look there in verse 47. What does it say? This man performs many miracles. They knew he was performing miracles. And yet they would still rather have their own prestige. But there's one of them. Look in verse 49. One of them, Caius, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Well, okay, that's one way to start a conversation. 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And without having any idea of it, Caiaphas spoke right prophecy concerning Jesus. Caiaphas, the one who said kill him, spoke right prophecy concerning Jesus. How can it be? How can it be that someone whose life is so committed to evil still says something that's good? How can it be that Balaam, that wicked false prophet in the Old Testament, gave some of the most spectacular, some of the clearest prophecy concerning Jesus in the entire Old Testament? How could someone so evil say things that were so good? Here's you a quote. Tell me who said it. You must not give power to a man unless, above all else, he has character. Character is the most important qualification the President of the United States can have. Who said it? Huh? Here's you another one. We must maintain the integrity of the White House, and that integrity must be real, not transparent. There can be no whitewash at the White House. Who said those two statements? Nixon. You got to have character as president? Yeah, well, that would have been helpful. Okay, now look, listen. Okay, while I'm, while I'm researching this, I like, I, like, I like obtuse quotes. I like ironic quotes. How could that person have said that? Now, here's what's difficult. So I was looking online. How do you type in and not have the CIA or somebody on your tail immediately... How do you type in and ask, what good statements did Hitler make? <laughs> type that in slowly. Be careful. Delete your search history immediately, right? You don't want to, you don't want to be on Paula's on or something. But he said, reading is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Okay, that's good. He said, anyone can deal with victory. Only the mighty can bear defeat. Well, it's a good statement, but he kind of proved that he wasn't one of the mighty, right? How is it that Caiaphas, who is so committed to the destruction of everything Jesus stands for, comes out with a word of prophecy this clear, one should die for the whole nation. Has anyone ever said anything to you that has governed your life and they had absolutely no clue that it was going to have that kind of impact on you? When I got into ministry... Somebody said, and I don't even remember who it was, said, Robert, don't ever confuse the urgent with the important. Urgent is the little old woman in the hospital saying, oh, you got to come visit me. Important is the, the kid standing by the front door with the ball and gloves saying, but dad, you said. Ten years from now, the old woman won't care. Ten years from now, you hope the boy will. Well, that has shaped my life. Whoever said it, they didn't know they were shaping my life. I did a research paper in college, had to do some primary research, and went and talked to an 81-year-old man. The reason I know he was 81, because when I was walking away, he said, listen to me. I was like, okay, okay. I'm 81 years old, and it's gone so fast. Well, I was a 20-year-old dumb kid. I didn't know anything. And yet, when he said that, that stuck with me. How many people have said things to you that have been absolutely life-transforming, life-directing for you, and they had absolutely no clue of it? 
And you know what's really cool is when somebody comes up to you and says, quotes something back to you. You said this and it was really life-changing. It's really a cool experience, especially when I'm not the one who said it in the least. But you don't tell them, you know, I didn't say that because that's just going to start. I'm just so happy that blessed you, you know. And here's what he said. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What an amazing truth. The sacrifice of one man could cover the guilt of all of those, all of us who have sinned. How can this be? How can it be that God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? How can it be that all we like sheep have gone astray? We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can it be that by one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How can it be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. How can it be that Caiaphas, the guy who connived, came up with the way, manipulated the people to demand the death of Jesus, that Caiaphas was the one who said, you don't understand. It, it is better for one to die than the whole nation die. And friends, that's every one of us. Man, we're in a mess. We're in a mess without Jesus. Because every one of us stand condemned by our own sin. And he said, what they, you know, he said why he did it. What they intended for evil, they wanted to get rid of this guy. God intended for good to gather into one the children of God. And this applies, look in verse 52, not for the nation only, but, for, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And guys, that's us. Man, if anybody's scattered, it's us. As far as time is concerned, we're scattered. We're scattered by space. We're scattered by culture. We're scattered by technology. We're scattered by ideology. This is us. <laughs> What he did, he did for us over in John 17 when he's praying. He said, and I pray not only for these, but for all those who will believe because of their message. He prayed for us, man. That's, that's pretty amazing. But they couldn't stand the thought of someone having preeminence over their institutions, their traditions, their power, their teachings over them. And so, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You know, it's interesting. For thousands of years, we went searching for God. Religion is nothing but man's search for God. Jesus is God's invitation to a relationship with him. And for thousands of years, we went searching for God, and all we could find was a rock or a stick or an animal to kill. Or All we could find was 
the sun, the moon, the earth, something to worship. And then Jesus showed up. And you notice all those ancient gods, they're so mean. They're so mad. They're so angry. Here, we have to make all these sacrifices. We're going to throw our kids into the lap of Moloch so that you won't destroy our corn crop. All we could find looking for him was just anger. And then when Jesus showed up, so kind, so gracious, so giving, so generous, their only response was, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus knew what he was here for. He knew what he came for. He knew he, came, he was born to die. He knew that he came to seek and to save that which, the, that which was lost. He knew that he was going to be crucified in Jerusalem. But he also knew what his time was. He knew when his time was, and he knew it wasn't his time. They tried to kill him up to Nazareth a while prior, and he just walked through the crowd and disappeared because it wasn't his time. And even though it wasn't his time, he still acted in wisdom in verse 54. <clears throat> when it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So, John said the purpose of the writing of this book was that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we look at this passage today, what can you believe out of this passage? What is there in this passage that demands that we believe, calls us to believe? Do you believe, could you believe that this passage, what this passage says about the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you given him your heart? And if not, why not? What's holding you back? Did you know that the Bible says that God's hand's not short, that he can't save, his ear's not heavy, that he can't hear? He said, your sins have separated between you and your God. There's a wall that has been built by our sins. And that separates us from God. And that wall had to be taken down so that we could get into the presence of God again. But we couldn't take it down. We're the ones who built it. And so the Father sent Jesus to die for the sins that we put up to separate us from Him. Jesus paid the price to take that wall down. And now all that remains, there's the Father, hears us, and all that remains between is Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Have you allowed His life to foster, to bring to life in you a relationship with the Father. Friends, that's what he came for. That's what he came for. And so you could have a relationship with the Father. If you're angry at him for what he has allowed or angry at him for what he has not allowed, I need to have a talk with him. Just go ahead and talk to him about it because he has big shoulders. He can handle it. He already knows what you're thinking anyway. May as well just talk with him about it, right? But if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you, would you think about, would you think about, not the miraculous to say, oh, the miracles are going to save me, but the miraculous to prove this is who he said he is. In John 8, he said, believe for the miracles' sake, if nothing else. You've got the writings, you have my life, you have the the miracles, believe for the miracles' sake. But believe what? That the miracles will save? No, that the one who is performing the miracles, is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. If you've never accepted that, if you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian, I encourage you to come up. We're going to have some folks up here in just a few minutes to pray with you. If you have any questions, they'd love to talk with you about how you can accept Jesus as your Savior.
But for the rest of us who have accepted Christ, what, what have you learned this morning? What have you heard that you hadn't heard in that way before? And what's kind of made you go, well, that's interesting. That made you think some. What's the Holy Spirit said to you? Could I ask you, would you, be, would you be willing to distill what you've heard this morning down to one, three, five sentences? And then, who will you teach that to this week? Who are you going to get with this week? Who are you going to have coffee with, play golf with, read a book with? Who are you going to just sit and visit with? Would you be willing to take what you've heard this morning from the Holy Spirit and just put it in front of whoever it is you get with? Entrust to faith to the faithful, 2 Timothy 2 2. Entrust to faithful men what you've seen and heard so they can teach others also. Jesus is so amazing. He's so wonderful. As the worship and the prayer team come forward, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Father, thank you that before we knew we had a need, you had already provided everything necessary to meet that need. Father, thank you that when we were like Lazarus, lying dead, wrapped up in our own sin, confusion, inability in a grave, totally oblivious to what was going on outside that grave, he didn't know that the stone had been rolled away, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you sent Jesus to call us, to wake us up. Cause us to see how much you really do love us, how good you really are. Father, the difficult things that happen, we don't understand them. And we just sometimes have to be honest about that. We just don't understand it. But Father, we would like to ask that please our hearts be like the wax that is melted by the sun rather than the clay that is hardened by the sun. And as we face the difficulties of life, as we face the storms that the wind beat, blew against the boat and the waves beat against the boat, that we'll look past the waves through the wind and see Jesus, which is your invitation to us anyway, to find you in the middle of life. God, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to us in the love that you have for us. And dear God, how can we say thank you enough? And so we give you our lives. We ask you to be glorified in us. For the only thing that will matter a thousand years from now, the kingdom of Jesus Christ.